We do want to continue to pray for them. That's the folks I was talking about earlier. They are in China as we speak. I don't know what the time difference is. I think it's like 40 hours or something. I don't even know if that's possible, but um, they're probably asleep or awake. But um, anyway, we want to pray for them. Some of you will get that on the way home. Um, We want to pray for them and uh, just pray God's safety as they travel and as they do ministry and then on their way back. Uh, Sean referenced in the video that next week we begin a brand new series called The Prayer. We're going to look for a few weeks at the Lord's Prayer and really understand how we can pray, how we should pray. We're going to do that by looking to the best example of prayer we have, the words of Jesus. And he taught us how to pray to his Father. And so... We're going to do that, but today is kind of an in-between Sunday. It's between the series that we just finished and the series we're going to start. We we teach in series here just to kind of keep things a little continuity among weeks. But today is one of those standalone Sundays where I get to preach on anything I want to. And uh, in your worship guide that you got, it says we're talking today about In God We Trust. And in God we trust, we were going to talk about money, and that was the plan until about Wednesday of this week, Tuesday or Wednesday, and then, uh, and then that totally shifted directions. I think maybe um, I'm going to blame it on the Lord, but uh, it may have just been something I ate. But I really believe that today um, we're going to talk about something that all of us um, need, to, need to hear. I need to hear this. I have been confronted with this every time that I've thought about it, read it, prayed about it all week long. And it really started for me prior to Wednesday. It started for me last weekend. I was not here last Sunday. Pastor Justin Walker was here and he spoke and he did an incredible job. If you haven't listened to the podcast, if you weren't here, you need to go back and do that. You can find that on our website or on iTunes. But he did an awesome job talking about community and really relationships and this culture. And it was awesome. And I wasn't here. I was traveling. My wife and I, we went to celebrate with my brother and his wife and his church as they celebrated five years of ministry in Louisville, Kentucky. And so we were traveling back and we got back home and then... In the weekend and in the early parts of the week, I began to hear, I didn't, I didn't see it, I began to hear all this backlash about the MTV VMAs. I don't know if anybody saw this, if you watched it, if you've heard about it. Um, MTV, VMAs, Video Music Awards, there was a bunch of you know, great singers and a great award show and all these kind of things. But in the middle of that was this thing by Miley Cyrus, who used to play Hannah Montana on the Disney Channel. And uh, I mean, it was just incredible backlash. I mean, from Christians and non-Christians alike and uh, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, if you could have seen my Facebook newsfeed or the people that I follow on Twitter, you would have thought the world was coming to an end. And as I read through these things, and, and again, I, I'm not making light of anything that happened. Today is not about Miley Cyrus or the VMAs. It's just something that really kind of was birthed in me as I read through the comments of the people that I'm friends with. I say friends with, loosely friends with. Some of them I'm really good friends with. Some of them I don't even know. They just sent me a friend request and we had enough mutual acquaintances it felt awkward to, to ignore them. And so I clicked yes. And I don't know who they are, where they live, but they were saying things. And I'm like, who the heck are you, right? And so as I read these things, no matter if you, if you saw what happened, if you didn't see what happened, if this is the first thing you've heard of this, if you're like, what is MTV? Um, hello. <laughs> Um, but anyway, whatever your context of this scenario is, this really, it it was, I mean, I don't know. It it stirred something in me. And and as I began reading the comments, it, it, it stretched from, I mean, these opposite extremes. It was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I just saw. How vulgar, how disgusting. Um, where is her father? Where are her parents? How can this be on our airwaves? Um, dirty, rotten center. I mean, like it was, it was this incredible, incredible thing. And most of the people, not all the people, but most of the people that I'm friends with on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, they, they, not all of them again, but a lot of them, they claim to have some relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and so as I was reading through this, I came across a comment from someone that I do know. 
And, and he wrote something like this. I'm paraphrasing, but it went something like this. Nothing gets Christians more riled up than having someone to scream at. I was like, wow, I think that's what I'm feeling. Like, right or wrong, no matter what happened, wherever you land on all that, that statement really encapsulated everything that I thought I was feeling as I was reading through all these comments from all these people, some of whom I know and some of whom I don't. And so today's not about Miley Cyrus. It's not about the VMAs. It's really about that issue. It's really about the accused and the accuser. It's really about religious people and religious attitudes and hopefully some things in all of us, myself included, that maybe we need to unearth today. So if you've got a Bible, flip with me to the book of John. John is early in the New Testament. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. It is one of the Gospels, which is the stories of Jesus Christ when he walked on the earth. And so we're going to look at a story here, and then we're going to go from there into the book of Matthew, which is going to be really easy for you to find when we skip there. So if you're in John, you don't have to jump ahead or jump back to Matthew. We'll find that together in a few minutes. John chapter 8 is where we're going to be. John chapter 8. We're going to talk today about accusers and the accused. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you have something different, some of the words may be a little bit different. This is what it says. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, and now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Some translations here, this is not the Bible, this is Jeremy talking for a second. Some translations that you have would add this phrase, as if he didn't hear them. So he bent down and wrote his finger on the ground as if he didn't hear them, or some variation of that phrase. At, reading back from the Bible now, not Jeremy, this is now God. Um, at, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, let me just stop right here. And I say this from time to time because I know that some of you are like me. And you've heard this story before. And you know where I'm headed. And you think you know where I'm headed. I don't think I'm headed where you think I'm headed. But I don't want you to jump ahead. Just travel with us down this journey through this story a little bit. And let's work through this together and see if it maybe doesn't bring to light some new things that you haven't heard. If this is a new story for you, you're in for a treat because this is an incredible story of Jesus, the Son of God on earth. But if you have been around church or been in the Bible very long at all, you kind of think you know where we're headed and maybe we're going to get to the same place. But I want you to stay with us. Let's jump back to verse 3. So John chapter 8, verse 3. We're going to kind of walk through this passage together a few verses at a time and then we'll Stop, and I'll talk a little bit. Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now stop for a second. Now, placing her in the midst, I had never thought about that phrase at all, except that if we remember from verse 2, Jesus was standing there teaching a crowd of people. 
So there is a group of disciples. Now, not the 12 disciples necessarily, though they were surely there. There is a group of the larger people that claim to be followers of Jesus that were trying to learn his teachings, trying to learn what pleased him and what honored him and what he was saying about the Father. And they were there listening to Jesus teach. And we don't have any aside here that says, and then the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees, they came and took Jesus aside to present to him this woman that was caught in the act of adultery. He was in the middle of teaching, kind of like I'm doing right now. So imagine if the doors opened and a bunch of religious people brought in a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they stood her right here. And they confronted me and said, Jeremy, you know, this woman's caught in the act of adultery. What do you say? The law tells us we can stone her. What do you say? This is a public flogging. This is not a private, you know, intervention like Jesus, son of God. We need to help this woman kind of work through some sin issues that we caught her in. And, you know, as a part of the community of faith, we want to help her through this. No, this was an attempt to embarrass her and trick Jesus. And so they brought her in front of Jesus as he taught a crowd of people. So in the midst, when you read that, he's placing her in the midst, he's placing her in the midst of that group of people Jesus was teaching. Which is a totally different deal than if they had brought Jesus to this woman or brought this woman to Jesus in private and now says, hey, let's deal with this issue. I read in one of the commentaries that I use from time to time when I'm putting messages together. And this is what it said. This was so interesting to me because, again, I'd never really thought about this. I've heard it preached a thousand different ways. Sometimes when I've heard it preached, I've even heard the preacher accuse one of the men that brought the woman as the man in the adulterous act. Don't know if that's even in the Bible, but I'm not going there today. Here's what this commentary said. Numerous witnesses of the act of adultery is inconceivable. These scribes and Pharisees were not necessarily the witnesses of this act. If not the witnesses of adultery, they became the accusers ready to take the case before the highest court. So I want you to think about that. Who's going to witness the act of adultery? The people involved and then anybody that happens upon it. Now, maybe that's the justification for those who have preached that, you know, one of the guys that showed up, one of the religious leaders and scribes, maybe he was one or maybe they had paid someone or they knew someone was going to you know, take part in this act. And so then they kind of rushed in. Maybe that was the case. But there was a group of religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, these, these religious people. They're the ones that brought the woman to Jesus. And I'm assuming maybe a bad assumption that not all the people that showed up with this woman in front of Jesus were actual witnesses to her being caught in the act of adultery. They came alongside those stories of the actual witnesses and partnered with that to become accusers because you're only a witness if you saw it, right? If you witnessed it personally, you're a witness. If you are Telling a story you heard from someone else, you're, you're now taking part in hearsay, which is inadmissible in court. You are now an accuser. Anybody can be an accuser. I can walk up to you today and accuse you of anything. You can walk up to me and accuse me of anything. And what sets apart an accusation as credible or not credible is to have a credible witness. And so we had a woman who, by this testimony of these people, was caught in the act of adultery... And evidently within that group, whether it be one or 50, there was a or some witnesses to that act because she never says she didn't do it. So evidently there was corroborating evidence here that was somebody had witnessed it. But we do believe that the larger crowd that brought this woman, they were not all witnesses. They were accusers. And my fear is that you and I, if you throw the VMAs out and you just talk about almost any other issue within culture, you and I are not witnesses to things we join with the party of the witnesses to become the voice of the accuser. And I don't know if that's what we're called to do. 
I'm not sure that Jesus allows us to live on earth so that we can play the role of the accuser. I don't think that's our role. I think there is someone who plays that role in the larger good versus evil, you know, dark versus light. I think there's someone that plays that role, but I don't think you and I are called to play that role. And yet in this larger group of people that bring this woman to Jesus, there is a or some witnesses. And then there is a larger group of accusers. And I believe that the people on my Facebook timeline last weekend were just a large group of accusers. And maybe there were some who had watched it, but I know for a fact, some of the people writing that don't watch the MTV VMAs. And so what did they do? They heard something and they latched onto it. I'm going to make a political statement that I shouldn't have made. There's a ton of people that make those kinds of accusations about our government at the highest levels, including our president. You're not witnesses to anything. You're accusers. Okay, I'll get off that now. All right. Witnesses and accusers are two different things. So they're in the midst of Jesus and a crowd. And they're playing the role of the accuser. Let's jump ahead to verse 5. This is what they say. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now the letter of the law that they were presenting to Jesus was right. There's two examples in the law where the act of adultery is to be punished by death. Now, if the the parties involved are married, they're betrothed to another, and they are caught in that act, then they're both to be guilty. If one of the parties is betrothed, they're married, they're engaged, they're somehow connected to someone, one of the other parties is not, then one or both of them can be whoever was the initiator of that act. So there there is some grounds within the law... For this accusation by these witnesses or accusers to say, hey, the law commands us to stone such a woman. The letter of the law was right, but it was their attitude that was wrong. It was their motive. And we're even given some idea to what their motive was by what's written here in John. Verse 6 said, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And here's what I thought about when I read that. People that are accusers, no one's exempt from them. They weren't just comfortable accusing the adulterous woman. Now they're accusing the son of God. They are trying to find some way in which they can now accuse him. And I think what starts out is really pure motives. It starts out as some really great things and tensions where we feel like we're supposed to kind of stand up for Jesus and stand up on behalf of God and the goodness of God. And we're supposed to do all these great things. I think in the purity of those original motives, what happens is it gets more and more legalistic Where now no one is exempt from our accusation. If you don't do it the same way I do it, now you're guilty and I'm not. We we, we get away from the actual letter of the law and now what they're saying is I want to find a way to trick you. I want to find a way where I can prove that I'm better than you or that you are not speaking the same truth that I say that I believe in. I ran across this quote. I'm going to quote him at least one more time today. But it's from a friend of mine who pastors in Charlotte, North Carolina. His name is Jonathan Martin. And this is what he says. This is incredible. He said, if you read scripture and it makes you feel smug and smart, like you have all the answers, you're reading it wrong. I'm going to say that again. If you read scripture and it makes you feel smug and smart, like you have all the answers, you're reading it wrong. If when you read the Bible, if it does anything but shows the parts of you that are in error, you're probably reading it wrong. If anything about reading the Bible makes you feel like I'm a really good, I've got it all together, I'm the good person, I'm righteous, I'm doing enough, I'm doing all the good things, you're probably not reading it in the way that it was intended. 
So my challenge for all of us, myself included, is to go back and read this story, not from the eyes of the accuser, but from the eyes of the accused. Because I think that's where we all land. I don't think this is on the screen, but the next part of this passage that we read deals with where Jesus starts kneeling down and writing in the sand. He writes in the dirt. This is what it said in verse, uh, at the end of verse 6. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And I told you that some translations also include as if he didn't hear them. It's almost like he didn't want to engage in this conversation. Some of the earliest, best manuscripts that many of them don't even include this passage. But, so it may have been added later. But some of the best, earliest manuscripts that do include it, include this phrase, as if he didn't hear. It's almost like he wanted to be slow to accuse rather than quick to accuse. Which is way different than a lot of people that I run in contact with. Right? We want to be so quick to accuse. It's almost like Jesus wanted to really delay accusation and give opportunity there for breath. So it's as if he didn't hear them. But whether or not he heard them, his engagement in the conversation took on a totally different shape than these people thought it would. Let's read together in verse 9. After Jesus has written in the dirt and he says, Hey, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. They walk away, the oldest ones first, almost as if the writer is showing us that wisdom and time and age show that none of us are guilt-free, none of us are without sin. This is what it says at the end of verse 9. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, And from now on, sin no more. Now, interesting to me, Jesus saying to this woman, sin no more, is an acknowledgement that she has sinned. If you think about it, him saying sin no more implies that he understands there has been sin previous to now. So he has the opportunity to judge her. He has the opportunity to stand in a place of judgment and administer punishment, whether through the hands and the rocks of these guys or himself as the righteous son of God. Instead, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now, stop sinning. Sin no more. He gives her instruction. It's almost as if, and I'm stealing this phrase too, but it's almost as if, we see the pattern that Jesus repeats over and over and over in the Gospels. That he defends sinners in public and confronts them privately. Rather than the religious leaders who wanted to confront her sin in the midst of everyone, Jesus took that opportunity not to respond in the way that they thought he should. And he defends her. He stoops in the dirt next to her publicly. And he confronts her previous sin privately without the sense of judgment and punishment. That stirs something up in me because I'm the religious leader. I'm, I'm the scribe and the Pharisee. I mean, nobody wants to be the Pharisee. And when I read the Gospels, I'm sure you're not guilty of this. I'm sure I'm the only one in the room. But when I read every time that Jesus is like bashing the religious leaders, I'm thinking, you go, Jesus. We're going to get those guys. But I think he's talking to me. I'm the religious leader. Not because I'm the pastor of this church. Because I'm religious. And I think some of us in this room are in the same place. We've we've been walking with the Lord a while. Right? We've We've been in this thing for a little while. We come to church. We're in a small group. We give. We serve. We read our Bible pretty regularly. 
You know, we do the religious things. We keep the law. But in actuality, that's what the religious leaders were doing. I said to a group of our volunteers this morning, I, I think the religious leaders get a bad rap. And, and, and maybe I'm saying that now because I'm aligning myself with them many times in their motives. Because I think deep, deep, deep down, not in the bring the woman in and accuse her in the midst of people. But deep down, I believe their original intent was to keep the law. I mean, God gave the law to his people. And I think they were just standing there trying to keep the law. And then as good God-fearing people keeping the law, I think they wanted to make sure that everybody else was keeping the law. And so I think out of that original motive, it, it started to get corrupted. And then what started out as this really pure thing of honoring God by keeping the law and making sure that others were honoring God who claimed to be religious. They wanted to make sure they were aligning themselves in the right way. I think somehow that's where they took on the spirit of the accuser. And they didn't play the role of this intercessor intermediary with God and saying, okay, how do I stand in the gap for you? How do I help you find the God that I'm seeking? And I'm seeking him through the law. And Jesus is here saying you can seek him through the son of God. How do I play that role and not the role of the accuser? And I'm confronted by the fact that Jesus acknowledged her sin. And judgment is going to take place. There's a day for judgment. There's a day for punishment. There's a day to acknowledge that you're a sinner and that something bad happens, we believe, to those who are not in right standing with God. Right? We believe that. That's in the Bible. We do believe that today is not to preach that there's no sin, there's no wrong. Or it's not today. There's a place for judgment. But I'm not sure stooped next to the accused in the dirt in the midst of a group of people is the place God intended for it to happen. I'm not sure that on my Facebook timeline, that's the place for the voice of the accuser to bring about judgment. I don't know. It's, I just, I don't see that in there. And I think the problem that we have is that we read this story through the wrong lens. I quoted Jonathan Martin earlier. He said something else which I thought was incredible. I heard him teach on this several years ago. And this is what he said. He said that he believes this story is much less the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. And more the story of the men caught throwing rocks. This is not the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. She has a moment with Jesus. But if I read this through the right lens, understanding the place at which I start this story as the religious leader, as the Pharisee, as the scribes that is trying to keep the law, trying to do everything right, trying to please God. If I read it from that perspective as me in that role, then I'm not the guy that got to stay there and listen to Jesus say, I don't condemn you anymore. Go and sin no more. I'm the guy that had to walk away and drop my rock. I'm the guy who doesn't get to type out my judgment on a timeline. I'm the guy who doesn't get to point at you. I'm the guy who doesn't get the right to judge what's going on in your heart. Now, there's a place for judgment. I've already said that. And I do believe within the community of faith, there's even a larger implication for those of us who do call ourselves believers. And in relationship, I'm supposed to help you and you're supposed to help me. And there's a relational thing here. But it's not so that I can point to you and go, gotcha. It's to put my arms around you and say, how can I help you? 
right? Because if I accuse you at arm's length, pointing out your flaws and your faults, I am just as guilty. But in the context of Christian community and relationship, which I believe Pastor Justin kind of referenced some last week, in that context, I don't point at you with arms extended. I pull you in close and I care for your soul. And I ask you to care for mine. That's the motivation for judging you, calling out sin in you. Not from a distance pointing at you, but in the context of godly relationship with one another. And I think here is the bottom line struggle that I have in this story. It's the struggle I have in this story. It's the struggle I have as I live in this culture that is day by day getting worse and worse and worse as it relates to the things that please God. I think if I don't condemn it, it looks like I'm condoning it. If I don't condemn it, it looks like I'm condoning it. It looks like I'm saying that's okay. I'm accepting it. But here's the truth that I want to walk away from today, and I hope you do too. You don't condone just because you don't condemn. You don't condone it just because you don't condemn it. That religious spirit in me that I'm trying so hard to break because I was born and raised in this, not that it's all bad, but there's a part of it that just starts to solidify in my heart and crystallize and get really difficult to kind of move around because it's harder and harder and harder. And I believe there's more things that just kind of get entrenched in me. And it's that religious mindset, that religious spirit. And when I see things that I think are wrong and I see things that I know to be sin, I look at those things and I go, I have to condemn that so that people don't think that I'm condoning it. And yet Jesus looked at a woman who was guilty of adultery and said, neither do I condemn you. But in the stillness of that moment, he challenged her not to sin anymore. There's a difference in bringing her in to humiliate her in public and kneeling next to her in the dirt and challenging her. Totally different motivation. I think all this stems from my God complex. I got a God complex. I'm I'm sure you don't. I do. The more I want to be like God, the more I want to please God, the more I think I am God. Not in a funny way, if that's funny at all. But in the way where I think I take on the right to administer justice. To administer punishment and judgment. Because I think I understand how God would administer judgment and justice and punishment. And so I'm saying, okay, if I want to please God, then I want to take that role and responsibility out of his hand. And I'll do it for him now here on earth. There's a time for judgment. Surely today is it. Today's the day that I stand up for Jesus and defend all the things that I think is honoring to God. And punish those things that I think don't honor God. It's my God complex. But as this God-complexed religious spirit inside of me, I am confronted by the actual words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. And I want us to end there today. If you've got a Bible flipped to Matthew 23, you should go left, flipping from left to right. So you're moving that way in your Bible or this way in your Bible. Matthew 23, it's the first book of the New Testament. 23rd chapter. We're going to read a few verses at a time and talk kind of like we've been doing it. Hopefully we'll go at a quicker pace or you'll be out of here by 4 o'clock today. Matthew 23, 
beginning in verse 1. This is Jesus talking to people like that ugly part of my spirit that I want to get rid of, that religious spirit, those people with God complexes. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his, to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. This flies in direct opposition. You don't have to flip there to the other words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus said to people, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, yoke is teaching. The things that I teach you is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. I want to read that same passage from Matthew 11 from the message translation. Listen to this. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So Jesus offers us that, and he says that the religious leaders offer us something else. That religious spirit offers us a heavy, cumbersome, weighty load that we put on people's shoulders... And don't do anything to help them remove it. And so here's the questions. Each of these times I'll have a question. Here's the question. One for me personally and then one for how I treat people. Do I practice what I preach? Do I actually live out what I say that I live out? And the second question for the way that I interact with people is do I make the gospel heavier for others than Jesus did? Do I make the gospel heavier than Jesus did? Jesus says, come to me, my teaching is light. It's not heavy and burdensome. And he's saying that there's a religious spirit that actually makes it heavy for you. Do I make the gospel heavier? Continuing in Matthew 23, verse 5, it says this. Everything they do, talking about the religious leaders, the Pharisees, is done for people to see. They make their, this word that you're going to see right there, depending on your translation, it's phylacteries. This is a box with the scroll in it, with the scriptures in it. They would either wear it on their forehead or their forearm. But they wanted to make sure it could be seen. It was actually supposed to be covered. But this, they make those things wide and the tassels on their garments long, which is a place of honor. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. The greatest among you will be your servant. That's verse 11. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Everything they do is done for people to see. That's what it said in verse 5. So here's a couple of questions. There's like four or five here. If your sins were brought out in front of the masses, how differently would you feel about the accused? If you were the one presented in the midst of the masses, how differently would your take be towards those that are accused? Am I more committed to God in public or in private? Is everything that I do for God so that other people can see? Am I more committed to God in public or private? What do I work harder at? Think about this. What do I work harder at? 
the perception of my relationship with God or my actual relationship with God? What do I work harder at? Verse 13 of Matthew 23 says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Wow. Wow. Do I feel like I'm the bouncer for heaven? Do I feel like I'm the gatekeeper? Nope, you can't get in. Nope, you're not good enough. Nope, go work out your stuff and then come back and I'll tell you if you can get in now. Shut the door in the faces of people to the kingdom of heaven. Verse 15, this is the last one. Ask the band to come. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Here's what he's saying right here. He's saying you work hard to evangelize, to bring people to an understanding that they need God. And then when you do that, you make it so hard for them to see grace and the grace of God because of how much you show them their condemnation towards hell if they don't get right. You don't present this balanced approach of grace and truth. It's truth, 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 truth. And when you get good enough and you get clean enough, then he offers grace to you. So here's the question for me. Do I hold other people to standards that I don't or can't keep myself? Do I hold other people to standards that I don't or I can't keep myself? The reality is this. I can't be the accuser because I'm the accused. I can't play the role of the accuser because I'm the accused. I'm guilty. I was caught in the act of sin. I'm guilty. I don't get to play both parts. I don't get to play both roles. But I try to play the role of the accuser so that people don't see me as the accused. It works one of two ways. Okay? Wrote these things down so I didn't forget them. My condemnation of others usually comes from one of two motivations. One of two things usually motivates me in my condemnation of others. Here's the first one. I condemn publicly what I'm struggling with privately. So I assume... If you see that I'm against it, you won't know that I'm struggling with it. So I condemn publicly what I'm struggling with privately. That's one motivation that I sometimes use to condemn others. To play the role of the accuser so that you don't see that I'm actually the accused. I I don't want to show you that I'm guilty of that. So I'm going to make sure that you know everybody else that's guilty of it. Here's the second motivation. I condemn proudly the things that I don't struggle with, motivated by pride that says, that's not my issue, therefore I'm better than you. So I either condemn publicly the things that I'm struggling with privately, or I condemn proudly the things that you're struggling with and I'm not, so that you know I'm better than you. These are the two motivating factors that allow me to try to get out of my role as the accused, the guilty, 
and allow me to play the role of the accuser. And here's what I've been confronted with this week. I don't want to throw rocks anymore. I don't want to throw rocks anymore. I mean, if given the opportunity, I don't want to be the guy that's hurling the guilt at those who are guilty. I want to be the guy that's stooped in the dirt next to her. Making sure that condemnation doesn't overcome her. And in private, I want to challenge her to live better, to be better in relationship. I don't want to point from a distance in condemnation. I want to, I want to draw her close. I, I don't want to be the accuser. I, I want to be with the accused. Because that's my actual role. That's my actual place. That's where I'm at. I don't know what gave me the right to think I'm the guy that gets to throw rocks. But I don't want to throw rocks anymore. I don't want to have this religious spirit in me that Jesus has to confront in me the spirit that I thought was pleasing to him. As I condemned others for their guilt. Two motivations. Maybe it's the same for you. I condemn publicly what I'm struggling with privately. Or I condemn proudly the things that I'm not struggling with, but you are. One is motivated in hypocrisy, which is wrong. Jesus calls out religious leaders for being hypocrites. And one is motivated in pride, which Jesus talked about all the time. I don't want to live there. I don't want to throw rocks anymore. I want to ask our hosts to get ready to wait on you as we take communion today. There's a really natural response to what we've heard. Really natural response. Jesus was with his disciples right before he went to the cross. And you and I, if you're familiar with this story at all, know that the cross was the tool that God used for his son Jesus Christ to pay the ultimate price for your guilt, for your sin, my sin, my guilt. So you and I know, looking back through the cross at the upper room where they ate this meal, you and I know that Jesus was telling them, I'm going to die My body and my blood are going to be split apart so that life leaves me and it becomes the the salvation mechanism, the atoning mechanism that pays the price for your guilt. You guys just come and get in place. Don't serve yet. This is the mechanism I'm going to use. And so you and I are looking back through the cross at this conversation. The disciples were in the conversation looking ahead, not knowing about the cross, not understanding it. Okay, so here's where you and I are on the hook, right? You're going to hold two elements in your hand in just the next few minutes. It's a little wafer cracker bread thing, and it's a cup of juice. And if you're honest with yourself, you're going to believe that that bread and that cup is enough for your salvation. 
You're not getting saved today by taking this. But you're going to believe that those elements were the price that Jesus Christ used to pay for your salvation. You're going to believe that God's grace was enough through his shed blood on the cross. And that was enough. And yet, here's the question. And this is what I want us praying and kind of seeking God about as we hold these elements while the band leads us and everybody else is served. I want to look at those elements and go, do I really believe, though, that these things are enough for others? Do I live in such a way that while I believe this is enough for me, I'm going to play the role of the accuser and not believe that it's enough for them? I'm going to move the elements aside and pick up my rock. When I believe that Jesus would say, put your rock down, pick up my body, pick up my blood, it's enough for you and for them. I'm going to pray and ask them to distribute these elements. I'm going to ask you to hold them as the band leads us in worship. God, this is tough. Today's hard. People will leave here mad at me. They'll think I'm condoning sin. They'll think I'm preaching that you don't have to get right to get to heaven. They'll think I'm preaching that whatever. I don't know what they'll think. I believe with all of my heart, to the best of my ability, I've spoken the words that you put in my heart earlier this week. That today is about putting the rocks down. Not playing the role of the accuser, but realizing our role as the accused. Searching for, seeking out your grace with all of our heart because we know it's the only way we can make it. And so God, for those of us who have experienced your grace, let us never get to the place where we don't allow that grace to flow to others. God, for those of us who have never experienced it, I pray in this moment, through something that's been said, something that's been sung, or holding these elements in in their hands, that they would know that you paid the price for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hold the elements, please. The more I seek you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Nobody's looking around in this moment. I want to pray two prayers today for two groups of people. If you would say to me, Jeremy, I am the accused. I know it. I'm guilty. I'm living in sin. I'm actively participating in a lifestyle of sin. I'm not living in a relationship with God. I may claim to. I may have a really shiny exterior, but I know beyond any doubt that I need Jesus. Maybe I've been in a relationship with him before. Maybe I never have in my whole life. But in this moment right now, I know that I need Jesus. I'm the accused. I'm guilty. And today... I want to acknowledge that sin, acknowledge my need for him. I want to make things right. And I want to walk out of here understanding the grace of God. Would you lift your hand? Nobody's looking around. You can put it right back down. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Anybody else? Thank you so much. You can put it right back down. 
wait just another moment. Anybody else? Second group of people. Second prayer. Are the accusers. I'm guilty of this. My hand will be raised. You say, you know what, Jeremy? I, I think I'm a good person. I'm a Christian. And I think it's my responsibility to stand up for Jesus and to condemn everything that's not his. And I point with my fingers extended and I say hurtful things. I put myself in a position of right and condemn all things I see as wrong. And if Jesus didn't participate in that, but instead he knelt down next to the woman and he didn't condemn her. If that kind of religious spirit is something that doesn't please God, then I want to be healed of that. I want to be forgiven of that. I want to work on that in me so that I can live a life that better represents him. Would you lift your hand? Put it back down. It's me. A bunch of us. Anybody else? Anybody else? God, I thank you for the two groups of people that raised their hand today. First is a group of people who readily acknowledge that they're guilty and they have a need for you. Maybe they've realized that before. Maybe today it's a fresh revelation from you. But your word tells us that we acknowledge you. We acknowledge that we need you. We respond to your free gift of salvation. But the work was already done by your son Jesus on the cross. And today we accept that as we ask you for forgiveness of the sins that we've committed. And in exchange for the sin, we get forgiveness. In exchange for the shame, we get no condemnation. Your word in Romans tells us that there is now there, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so today we lay aside the heaviness of sin, the heaviness of expectation, and we take on the light yoke that you promised to us. That we come to you when we're weary. I pray for every person that raised their hand that they would not fall into the trap of thinking they have to perform for you. And God, I pray today for every person that raised their hand as the accuser. That whether it be religious spirit or pride or hypocrisy, we extend our hand, we scream with our voice cover up our pride or to cover up our own sin and so today God I pray that you would forgive us heal us break us allow us to live lives that represent you and help us to respond in the way that you respond let us not fall into the trap of thinking that if we don't condemn it we condone it Help us to love the way that you love so that when people see us, they see you. In Jesus' name we pray.